Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have Joyce Appleby on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, The Relentless Revolution, A History of Capitalism. Today, everybody wants to be a capitalist. Even Chinese communists want to be capitalists. I find this very surprising, and it has led me to the thought that perhaps capitalism or the spirit of capitalism is buried deep inside us all. That is that in every one of us, there is a little profit seeker trying to get out. But after reading Joyce Appleby's terrific book, I know this is not the case. Capitalism, she points out, is a culture in addition to being a set of economic institutions. And that culture developed in a single place and a single time, roughly the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries in northwestern Europe. It is the product of that time and that place and the historical forces that were at play there. There is perhaps something universal about capitalism in the sense that humans are very good at reciprocating. All human cultures engage in trade. But trade is not capitalism, as Joyce well points out. Capitalism is something else indeed. And she does a terrific job of tracing its origins in this period in northwestern Europe. And of course, since then, it has spread everywhere. Largely as a result, I think we have to conclude both of the ways in which this culture was attractive to a lot of non-capitalists and also the ways in which the capitalists themselves, that is, people in the West, carried these institutions and imposed them on other places. I think this is the most interesting part of Joyce's book. I really enjoyed talking to her today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Joyce. Hi, Marshall. Uh, How are you today? I'm very well. So, hate to say this to all your listeners, but it is a beautiful sunny day, and I think it's going to hit 71. Well, it's sunny here in Iowa. I think it's about 8 degrees, but (laughs) it is sunny. So I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Joyce Appleby today about her uh, book, The Relentless Revolution, A History of Capitalism. I enjoyed the book a lot, as I told her in the pre-interview. It says something kind of fresh and interesting about a topic that has been uh, studied quite a bit. I mean, this is obviously something that most people are interested in now that everybody wants to be a capitalist. It wasn't always so. I know Joyce remembers when it wasn't always so, and I do too as a historian of Russia and the Soviet Union. I lived in a place where people didn't want to be capitalists, but now I, you can, it's hard to meet a person that doesn't really want to be a capitalist. So, uh, yeah, as I say, it says something very uh, fresh and novel about, about the topic, and that's terrific. It's also wonderfully written, and uh, it's a really an engaging read. So I encourage you to go out and pick a copy of it up. Joyce, maybe you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I was born next to Iowa in Nebraska. Really? In, yes, grew up in the Middle West. Uh, my um, father was with the United States Gypsum Company, and he was a young uh, salesman who was being promoted, so I kept moving to larger cities in the Middle West, like Kansas City and Evanston, Illinois, but also Dallas, Texas. And uh, I came to California when I was 14, and I have been here ever since, so I've 
lived abroad for years, four separate years, and lived in New York for two years, and lived in San Diego. Well, it's California. It's not Los Angeles uh, for about six years. So I feel very much a Westerner, um, and my my family is one of those families that, that kept moving west. Um, yeah, when Nebraska was the west, they moved mm-hmm. into it. My grandfather was something of a pioneer lawyer. He actually was a good buddy of William Jennings Bryan. Really? So I, wow. Had those uh, those old uh, Midwest political traditions in my blood. I um, went to Stanford, and then I after that I went to uh, New York and worked for Mademoiselle Magazine. And I discovered with that work that I wanted to do something more serious. That fashion was really not my cup of tea. Um, but I got married and had a baby right away, and I became a uh, Reporter, uh, Stringer, as they called him. I had a small city near Pasadena that was my beat. Um, and I liked that work a lot, but I discovered that I didn't have the makings of a reporter. It's an interesting experience. I was, um, got a call from the city editor telling me to get over to a house in South Pasadena right away because a 14-year-old boy had been shot by another 14-year-old boy when they were goofing around with guns, and they needed a picture of the victim who was in the hospital. And I felt just like Brenda Starr. Yeah. <laughs> I dashed out to get this picture, and I arrived at the house, and the parents were with the boy in the hospital, and the grandmother was there, and there was even a picture on the mantle. And I asked the grandmother for the picture, and she began to waver, and she said, oh, they would be so upset if they came home and they didn't have the picture. And I sided with her. Mm-hmm. I knew what I should do is say, out of the way, Grandma, and grab the picture and run in the great journalistic tradition, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, Joyce, you don't have the makings of a reporter. Mm-hmm. You want to write, so you've got to figure out some other way. And so after another child, I started back uh, very slowly in graduate uh, work. I was living in Santa Barbara then, and I got a master's at the University of California. And then uh, slowly I um, worked, well, I didn't really work on the Ph.D. slowly, but slowly I worked up to working on a Ph.D. And so by the time all three of my children were well into elementary school, um, I started teaching, so I was a, a late arrival in uh, to history. Um, but I always loved history. I majored in it. I don't know why I loved it. I have a theory about human beings. I think they they're divided in about six or seven groups in the way in which they perceive reality, and some of them do it visually, and some of them do it by measurement, and they usually become scientists. But lots of them do it sequentially, but through understanding one event following another and how this complicated process works. And they're going to be historians or history buffs. I never worry about a decline in history majors because they're just a certain number of people <laughs> who understand reality that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you started to teach, uh, and then you wrote books. That's right. I did. In fact, my first book came out of teaching. I didn't publish my uh, uh, doctoral dissertation. I published articles from it. I didn't really know much about 
uh, at the academic world. I was really, I, I was really a housewife on vacation. That's the way I approached it professionally. And I realized this because my husband became a professor after me, and I saw him do things that had never occurred to me to do. He was a man. He just knew how to move in a professional world, and I had no sense of that. But. Uh, because my husband came into the historical world after me, we went to England for a year for his dissertation uh, uh, research, and I had been teaching for three years, and I had noticed something very fascinating. I found a mystery that I wanted to solve. The course that we taught uh, at San Diego State was one where they used documents, and we, it was a typical, the liberal canon. It's started with the Puritan sermons and then it moved Adam Smith and the Federalist Papers and, you know, with Locke and Hobbes interspersed. And in the Elizabethan dramas and the Puritan sermons, human beings are treated as impulsive, fickle, bathed in sin, incapable of running their lives well. And by the time you get to Adam Smith, human beings are sober, self-improving, shrewd in the market. Um, Responsible, and I thought, how in the world had this view of human nature changed? So while Andy was busy doing his research, I sat down in the British Museum and I decided to read all of the tracts that had written, been written about the economy in, the, in 17th century England, since this is the century in which this change took place. And it was also the century in which England was becoming a capitalistic society, acquiring a capitalistic economy with reforms in agriculture and artisanal work and eventually manufacturing. Um, and what I discovered is that these observers of these dramatic changes, they were slow, but they were nonetheless profoundly transformative, that they, as they observed, they saw human beings being rather shrewd in their market dealings and being, uh, you know, taking up the opportunity to have a uh, new business or carry their cheese to a larger area or all the steps that led to the creation of a national market. And this view of human nature that started out in just random observations had become so ingrained in English thought that Adam Smith doesn't even argue the view. He just tosses it out that people naturally truck and barter, that they are uh, 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 restless from the cradle to the from the womb to the um, interment. They are constantly self-improving. And then I and I I realized to my satisfaction that that was how this view of human nature had come into being. It had come into being as people had responded to the opportunities that were developing in the economy, and their responses had been observed and articulated uh, by writers and talkers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's actually a nice uh, segue into our current topic, which is uh, your book, The Relentless Revolution. Um, I was going to, well, let me just ask the question, how did you come to write this book? Why did you decide to write this book? I didn't really decide to write this book, an acquaintance asked me, prompted me to write this book. I had been interviewed by a man on a San Francisco uh, public radio show, but I've been interviewed by telephone about 20 years ago. And then about, I don't know, 12 years ago, he was coming to L.A. and he wanted to meet me. And so we met and he said, you know, you ought to write a book on capitalism. And 
And you ought to write a history of capitalism. And I just sort of smiled. <laughs> and my field is 17th and 18th century history. And so the coffee ended. And, and But he came back the next year. And he said, you've got to write a history of capitalism. And I said, Michael, his name is Michael Phillips. I said, what do I have to say about capitalism that, that people need to know? You just do. And I said, well, you, would you write me a couple of paragraphs and tell me what you think? What you see as the great hope for this book? What do you think I should say? Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, what do I know that you think is so important for other people to know? Because he wanted it to be a popular book, not a scholarly book. Yeah. He wanted it for a general audience. And, when I, and I realized when I uh, read his paragraphs that he wanted me to write a book showing why capitalism was a cultural system. Mm -hmm. This is what I had started out discovering, how a culture changes its mind about human nature and how this happened through observations of these market developments. Um, and so that sort of appealed to me. And I thought, hmm, I could do this. I mean, I'm a 17th and 18th century historian. I followed Jefferson, so I'd go up to the first decade of the 19th century, and then I was born in 1929, so I've lived through most of the 20th century. Um, it, I, I could do this. I could fill in that 19th century with a little study. So that's how it came about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, why don't we actually begin talking about the book? You say that capitalism is a cultural system, and I think you convincingly argue this. Most of our listeners, I think, and I think most people that um, <clears throat> even are, are not our listeners, would say that it's an economic system. Um, could you talk a little bit about why you think well, that cultural is a, is a, is a, yes. is a is, uh, that capitalism is a cultural system? It's a cultural system that is certainly based on a particular economic uh, structure, an economic uh, heart. Uh, an economic non-system uh, that allows uh, individuals to invest their own private resources uh, in efforts to uh, produce marketable services or uh, goods, and there usually is incentive there to enhance their productivity, um, to enhance profits. So it it has definite economic. Components, but all of those elements that I've just talked about were an assault to traditional society. So when you first had market practices introduced in agriculture and and in um, marketing and manufacturing, uh, the the people who did it ran into the defenders of the status quo. One of the big differences between capitalism and trade, per se, is that trade had existed since the time of you know, uh, Babylon. It is as old as, as uh, all of our ancient records, and it lived comfortably in traditional societies, in the interstices of traditional societies. But capitalism, which involves improvements in agriculture and, and in manufacturing, couldn't live within the interstices of traditional society. It had to change them because it changes people's habits, changes people's attitudes, it changes the sites where people work, no longer in the house, but more, you know, coming into factories. So that this, these economic practices, in order to become an ism, a capitalism, and dominate the society, had to engage the society and had to develop the attitudes and values, the norms, the expectations, the child-rearing traditions essential to its thriving. 
So yes, it has an economic base, but the economic base can't just be laid on a traditional society. It has to transform it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting point. Let's actually uh, set the stage, or let's say put the players on the stage. Who are the first people to think about uh, economic relationships or about social relationships in general in this way, in what we might call a proto-capitalist or a capitalist way? Who are the uh, inventors or observers of this? Well, the inventors, or would be different from the observers, the the inventors of such and such were, were um, initially were people improving agriculture. And they did this for a very good reason, wanting to increase their yields. And that was in, it's hard to know why people do things, uh, but I believe that it was in response to the fact that England was going, I mean, it, all of Europe was going through a uh, rise in, in population. And of course, at the same time that this is going on, uh, you have the beginning of people forming joint stock trading companies and, and getting together the savings of widows and elderly men and young people who had no idea of what to do with their savings but put in the hands of a, of a group of investors. You have these um, joint stock tra- trading companies sending out uh, the people to, uh, to make all the settlements that the English make along the um, no, uh, East Coast of the United States and also in the Caribbean. So you have all these initiatives. They're just people with ideas. Um, and the observers are a pretty anonymous group. There are some um, people that, that whose names would ring a bell, but by and large, um, they're just people who are writing pamphlets. They're writing broadside sometimes. There are officials who are observing. Uh, eventually, you get, you know, high flyers like John Locke and and Isaac Newton who write about the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the original people are not, you know, they're not especially well known. They're just uh, another thing. I think I should say is that England's going through. This is England's century of revolution, and it's a century of revolutionary religious ideas. The Puritans, the Roundheads against the Cavaliers, all of these groups that we know from our from our mm-hmm. high school history courses, and this meant a, a tremendous outburst of publication. So there are many, many, many presses in England for the, these religious disputes, and that gives an avenue to all these other people who are writing to get them published. Mm-hmm. It's a flourishing public press. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let me ask you a tricky question. I, th- I think you can answer it. It's it's a it's a perennial topic in, I think, serious historical discussion. Why then and there, which is to say in 17th century England, why not someplace else in some different time? Well, I, that is a very, uh, that is a very uh, often asked question. Um, I would say that it's just simply a convergence of many different factors. And the fact that you have highly civilized societies living on the brink of famine almost any given decade shows you that it was something really remarkable to break out of that vice of scarcity. When you think about how long really wise, smart people had constructed beautiful uh, architectural structures and, and sophisticated science and marvelous literature, and yet they never had enough to eat in any given year to be sure that the next year they would. So I want to emphasize how dramatically different 
Mm-hmm. The market in, in, in the free enterprise economy is in generating wealth. Uh, so I think it took a concatenation of developments, and I'll just mention them briefly. I yeah, please about, do. I talked about the flourishing press, uh, the fact that England was in a series of civil wars in the 17th century. It meant that. Um, ordinary people could break the law with impunity. They weren't supposed to uh, uh, hold grain off the market and wait for a better price. They weren't supposed to be uh, self-interested individual actors in the economy. They were supposed to follow very strict regulations so that everybody would get fed that year. And so you had this this um, freedom that because of the officials were distracted by these civil wars. You also had this, it was also a period of scientific breakthroughs. And you had, for the first time, the understanding of some very basic uh, features of our natural environment. Uh, and these, of course, led to publications, which, because of England's freedom uh, and its easy association between classes, you had this uh, scientific elite not sealed off from the rest of the public, but accessible. So you had mechanics, the people with a gift for invention, turning this new knowledge into machines. They discovered the power of steam. Uh, You had a market situation in England in which um, you had relatively high wages compared to Europe, and you had an abundance of coal. So there was a real economic incentive to figure out how to substitute human labor that had to be paid with a mechanical labor mm-hmm. machine that didn't have to be paid. Um, I just think all of these things were, played a role. And I know it's not the kind of tidy explanation people like, but we historians deal in these complicated answers because change doesn't come easily. You have to have a lot going on, like mm-hmm. explaining why Egypt's erupting now. You know, I'm sure there are seven, eight, nine, ten factors, many of them with long histories, some of them just immediate triggers. Mm-hmm. And and also, I want to stress that even though it's a dramatic breakthrough, it took a long time. Mm-hmm. Generations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's actually happening on the ground. These what we might call capitalist habits and institutions are uh, evolving sort of of their own accord in this unique historical context. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the people, the observers again, because pretty quickly I think there were theorists of this. The one my, my personal favorite, uh, having had a liberal arts education, is uh, Alexander Pope. He was the poet of capitalism. <laughs> um, but uh, other well-known people are, as you say, Adam Smith. Well, what did they say about uh, – h- how did they use what they saw to make to draw conclusions, new kinds of conclusions about human nature? Well, I'll tell you one of the first battles was in the 1620s, and it involved um, Thomas Munn and Edwin Misseldon, uh, among other people, and it was, a, it was a critical debate. And in it, what had happened is there was a, 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 a glut of cloth in uh, Europe, and England's major export was cloth. And... The Privy Council wanted the clothiers, the man who, men who took cloth to homes where the, it was spun uh, and woven, um, they wanted them to continue to, um, to take cloth to these homes because they depended upon it. And these clothiers said, but if we 
keep paying these workers when there's no need for cloth, we won't have any capital when the market turns up. And there was a breakthrough. For the first time, the Privy Council went with the clothiers instead of insisting that they be socially responsible employers who continue to employ even when they didn't need the labor. And there, then, and there was an exchange about how England could improve the situation, and people thought they blamed. Can you believe it? They had to find scapegoats, <laughs> and they said it was money exchangers. They were people that were not valuing the, the pound sterling the way they should. And Munn wrote a wonderful piece in which he explained that this wasn't so, that money did not push goods, that money followed goods in a normal transaction. Um, and in his argument, he comes forth with the idea that there is no way you can keep people from seeking their profit, and that it will nothing that the government can do to maintain an arbitrary uh, exchange rate is going to change people's following, pursuing their own goals. And he has, I'm going to try and find it if I can, because it is so, it's just a wonderful line that you get a sense of um, the, you get a sense of this new view of human nature as being um, profit-oriented and autonomous, and they will get there and they will follow this individual ambition and not be curtailed by the government, I found. He said, let the mere exchanger do his worst. Let princes oppress. Let lawyers extort. Let users bite. Let prodigals waste. So much treasure only will be brought in or carried out as the foreign trade doth over or under balance. Mm -hmm. And then, my love, he added, and this must come to pass by a necessity beyond all resistance. Mm -hmm. Now, there is the beginning of economic science. Mm -hmm. It is in the sense that there's nothing that government can do because mm -hmm. the economy is going to run on its own because of individual motives. Mm -hmm. So I, to me, that is a breakthrough. And and it, 80 years later, Locke says the same thing about um, trying to get people, to, trying to catch smugglers by getting them to take oaths that they haven't smuggled. He said, his business is to forget it. They will, they will uh, lie under oath mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, about what they're doing, and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm -hmm. And this is a very new idea in a world in which you think that the king and the king's officials can run things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was, there, was there a lot of resistance to this idea that people are naturally acquisitive? Yes. There was a, a you know, I don't know that, was, that people were actually acquisitive because the view of human nature had always been that it was bad, uh, but that they were naturally, um, that they were naturally wise enough to follow their own uh, goals. Mm -hmm. That was that was new. Mm -hmm. And the people wanted to go back to say, no, they're lazy, they're indolent, they're this, they're that. And these other people said, uh-uh, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. they, they know what they want, and they will get it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you talk about this in the book. It, by the 18th century, uh, this notion that um, natural acquisitiveness or self-seeking or something like this, something that would have been called greed or avarice or something like that, this notion evolves into an entire positive social philosophy. And again, I'm I'm thinking of my... My favorite 18th century poet, Alexander Pope, who said something like, self-love and social, one and the same. Um, how, how did the, they get from noticing that people 
uh, are, as I put it, naturally acquisitive to the idea that being naturally acquisitive and setting a context in which people could be naturally acquisitive was a good thing that actually could benefit everyone. I think they did because of prosperity. Mm -hmm. I think they did it because what did you have? What did Pope live with? He lived with a in a beautiful city, uh, London, and its shops were just full of things that had never been there before. You have this thriving colonial trade. You have sugar and sugared things you've never had before, and tea and coffee. And of course, they were making gin in great amounts. So of course, you have your Horogarthian pictures of, of a pretty destitute and rowdy, rowdy uh, lower class. But you also had the sense of a busy, bustling port with things coming in from all over the world, building. I mean, here is London was burned to the ground and rebuilt in an astoundingly short time. So I think this prosperity and the idea of all these people being, you know, they were, they were very orderly. They were rushing off to work. Mm -hmm. they, they got there on time. They were, I don't want to exaggerate that because that took another century. But they, if they were shopkeepers, they were mending their shop. They were, they were still uh, in the 1720s, 30s, 40s, still a small outfits that were um, funneling all this energy into the market. I think this is what did it. it was, they, could, they, they could observe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, I don't remember where this is, but I, I think it's Smith. I, I might be making this up. He says something to the effect of, you know, the you know, sort of average middle class person in London lives better than any king in Africa. Right. Yeah. Right. So I, I don't remember the passage exactly, right. but yeah. No, that that and that um, uh, actually is a kind of a racist as a king of thousands of savages. Yeah, sure. <laughs> something sure. like that. Um, Right, and that, of course, is what inspired his inquiry into the wealth of nations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He is astounded. Uh, so when you lived in these first generations, as you say, say from 1690 on, um, you were still breathtaking. Mm -hmm. Your breath was taken away mm -hmm. by the evidence of prosperity, mm -hmm. even though incredible levels of poverty at the time, too. But right. this was so new. Yeah. And, and, so I was going to say the proof of the pudding was in the eating, and uh, people in England could watch it go on and could eat it and see that it, it uh, was a viable way to structure an economy and maybe even a society. But it, 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 it spread, as you point out in the book, uh, pretty quickly. It spread to the shores of the United States, and it spread uh, across the Channel to uh, parts of Central Europe. Um, how did it do that? How, how did the propagandists, can we call them that, of capitalism convince people in otherwise traditional societies that it might be good to arrange things this way? Well, I think, again, uh, it was the visual evidence, it was the tactile evidence of the goods that were being produced, the evident prosperity. I mean, you know, Voltaire comes to England, spends three years, and he's just, you know, he's just entranced. Here they have freedom of speech, they, they have regular elections, they have all these goods, they have shops, they have a vigorous civil society where people meet and talk and all sorts of clubs and organizations. And then he goes back to France, desperately poor, mm -hmm. you know, censors, uh, uh, people who are beaten up on uh, the street, as he once was, by a nobleman's uh, henchman, when, and there was no, no redress. Um, so there was that kind of propaganda. But I think what, more than anything else is that these were all countries that were rivals. So the, the initial imitators are France and Germany, and then uh, the Netherlands didn't have to imitate. They were already advanced. They were just too small and too commercial-oriented to make the 
jump into industry that England makes, uh, but even Belgium becomes an industrial power. The, for the rivals, particularly France, it was a necessity to imitate it because what does money generate? It generates revenue. And what does revenue help a country do? It helps arm itself. Mm-hmm. And are still, France and England fight five wars in the long 17th century from 1688 to 1815. Um, and they compete everywhere around the world. Their armies are competing in Canada and the Caribbean and India. And so they, they saw the need to get this wealth to to find out what the English are doing. They send all their spies over. There's a lot of industrial espionage because the English don't let uh, factory plans or machine designs out of the country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's too open a society. It's too porous. And, and these designs do get out. And of course, in the, in the case of the United States, it already was a, an entrepreneurial society. It had to be in order to create its own uh, uh, well-being while even while colonies and then once you had independence they were free to do things they'd never been able to do again before like go to the orient or and uh, manufacture and they move right into those fields Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. now i suspect there was uh, resistance what we would now call liberalization in places like france and um and germany how did that manifest itself well, it, it, it manifests itself differently. The, the French really went after high-end industrial products, and they kept a lot of government control. And they certainly did before the revolution. And even after the revolution, they continued that. So that the French economy is is different from the English economy. Um, and so, too, is the German economy. The Germans are quite backward. It was really Napoleon who who uh, trounced through Germany and, and various principalities. Um, but then in Germany, you have finally, after the Napoleonic Wars, you have Prussia beginning a long effort to unify a German-speaking people with the exclusion of Austria. And so that the, uh, the Prussians start a trade union uh, where they lower tariffs among themselves and raise for dissolve our iron. They get more and more people in it. But nation building in Germany is very much associated with economic development. Uh, but again, the state has a very, plays a very strong role. And of course, uh, Prussia under Bismarck does create a German nation. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, one of the first things that Bismarck does is introduce social insurance for workers against accident and old age and death. Uh, and this safety net is you know, it's much stronger now, but it was the first in the world, and it's much stronger than the Americans had. So the, these countries, do, making my point about capitalism as a cultural system, they develop capitalism that is in tune with their cultural traditions and their political structure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, that's interesting how uh, ideas that are born in one place can then be taken to another and are assimilated to uh, th- that sort of native set of values. I mean, I can tell you in the Russian case, I'm a Russian historian, uh, they were never assimilated very well. Uh, and right. and uh, that actually leads me to another question. Um, initially, in the 17th and 18th century, the opposition to uh, capitalism or capitalism as a culture uh, came from traditional quarters or what we might even call religious quarters, the notion that somehow 
um, self-love, as Pope would have put it, or just greed was it was a bad thing, was a sin, and should not be uh, used as the fundament for a political system. That 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 was the kind of locus of opposition to those rules. But by the mid nineteenth century, we have a, a, a kind of a different grounds for this. And I'm thinking about the genesis of of Marxism and socialism and these things. What what did they say about uh, capitalism? Well, it's in Marx's case, in fact, all of the uh, European socialists are interesting in their difference from English observers. Capitalist development took two centuries in England, so you have six, seven generations, and it appeared to Adam Smith that, and other observers that it was an evolutionary thing and that it developed out of human instincts to truck and barter and to be self-improving. Capitalism in the form of industrialization came swiftly to Germany and to France, and it meant that it was impossible to see it as a natural evolving system. So that Marx, seeing capitalism, sees it as the product of a class struggle, of a class of capitalists fighting off the old feudal landlords and then imposing this incredible, disciplined, coercive policies towards the working class that it is sucked in to these dark satanic mills, <laughs> to use an English yeah. phrase, uh, <clears throat> on the continent. So he saw it as disruptive and he developed a theory of history to understand this disruption. Um, and he also, of course, sees it as a part of a world development. So capitalism for Marx is but a crude, rough, cruel stage on the way to socialism and eventually communism. And um, and and Marx. But one of the things I think is so fascinating about Marx, he sees that capitalism has done wonders. It's produced all this. It's produced the market, and it's taken the kind of lazy, indolent, lower class peasant of Europe and turned these men and women into efficient factory workers. In other words, they have been disciplined and were ready to be the army of revolution to overthrow capitalism when its time comes. Um, and of course, they, <clears throat> the feeling towards capitalism is that it's a wretched system that only benefits the very few. And to a certain extent, that was true of those of the proletariat. Uh, it, capitalism benefited the wealthy and those with capital, the factory owners. It benefited the petty bourgeoisie. Mm -hmm. It benefited a lot of retailers and small people. But it was very cruel mm -hmm. to the working class. Mm -hmm. And it's that exploitation of the working of a vulnerable working class that generated a new criticism mm -hmm. of capitalism and the prediction that it would not last, that it would be replaced by socialism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it, stri it strikes me that we should, uh, you know, there's a great tendency these days to dismiss Marx, but uh, it, it, I see real similarities between some of the things that you say and some of the things that, that, that he said. I mean, one of the things that he pointed out was uh, versus um, someone like Smith or Pope that um, capitalism was not sort of built into us. It was a historical development. So, right. I mean, yeah, in that sense, I mean, I think he was a cleverer than we often give him credit for. Um, so. Oh, I think it's brilliant. I mean, Marxism has been absorbed into conventional historical thinking. You know, they've thrown out the 
the economic theory, as it were, but this whole idea of ideology, the idea mm -hmm. that the people thought that uh, that our minds were utterly free and we just took into our brain anything that, that served us well, and that we were all sort of truth seekers, and, and Marx you know, just dismissing that with the idea that consciousness arises out of the economic base of the society, uh, that ideology that, that you have an economic system, and then on top of the economic system are all the justifying and supportive institutions, the law, the political system, the literature, um, the sociability even. I mean, that I think historians still, the whole notion of the dominance of culture mm -hmm. uh, arises really from Marx's insight. Of course, mm -hmm. it's been taken on by anthropologists and, and developed in many fresh ways, but no. Marxist, brilliant. Yeah, no, I, uh, I'm glad to hear you say all that. I'm, like, I quite, I'm no Marxist, but I quite agree with all that. But his economics was wrong. Yeah, no, and his, he didn't anticipate. This is his great failure. He didn't anticipate that these self-improving people could, in fact, form political groups that would curtail and change capitalism mm -hmm. and, and tame it to some extent. Mm -hmm. He didn't see the rise of a Labour Party in England mm -hmm. that would, you know, make the reforms it did. Mm -hmm. or of America, the reforms that were made in America at the end of the 19th century in regards to the, the robber barons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, that kind of next phase in uh, capitalism or the history of capitalism, and that is uh, the, uh, the Great War and then the, the Depression that followed. I mean, it, it looked as if the entire project had fallen apart. I know that from my own research and many people I've talked to, uh, there were people in the 30s who thought that it was over for capitalism, that it had, had proven uh, it had proven kind of a disaster and that they were looking in other directions for things. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. that that's certainly true. And I, I know that the people who are 10 years older than I that I've met who talked about when they were in college that no one ever said anything good about <laughs> capitalism. They were fighting about whether they were Trotskyites or Leninites or socialists versus communists and, or, or even fascists. I mean, there was a sense that yeah. it was a dead end. Uh, but what was going on beneath the scenes, as it were, I mean, I think you can blame the, the rivalries, the national rivalries, um, on the First World War and the hideousness of the war was due to the wealth that had been generated. So they, in the armaments and the, you know, the, the, the money they had to keep men facing each other 30 yards apart in trenches for four years. Um, so the capitalism certainly um, accelerated and intensified the capacity for warfare. The rivalries are very old, older than capitalism. But um, what I think is very interesting is that in this very destructive period, and I'm sure in another couple of years, 100 maybe years, you're not going to have World War I and World War II. You're just going to have one world war uh, with a disastrous depression in between. Out of this came some wisdom. People who had experienced the First World War as young men and the Second World War as mature men vowed that they were not going to allow these rivalries to get them in the fix again. I'm thinking of John Maynard Keynes, of uh, uh, Schumann, of, um, um, oh God, what is that other uh, Frenchman, the people that start the Steel Union. Mm -hmm. and, and, um, there were, uh, Roosevelt would be another example, and uh, uh, Churchill, men who had, had official, you know, strong official positions, 
in both wars. And out of this came the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944. The war wasn't even over. But you had a couple hundred representatives from, I think, 43 countries coming to the uh, New Hampshire for this great conference. Uh, mainly the idea of Keynes, but they were determined to develop mechanisms that would ease international trade and have mechanisms that would enable a, a sound exchange rate and a, a secure one. Capitalists take risks, but they don't like taking risks. They want as secure and certain an, an investment environment as possible. And it's similarly for capitalist countries. And so you had put in place a number of international bodies um, that meant that when rebuilding came after the Second World War, you would have uh, shared prosperity. And the you know, 25 years between 48 and 73 are probably the most prosperous years that capitalist, Western capitalist nations have ever enjoyed. Mm -hmm. So there, there was, you know, something. The other thing was that after the First World War, England was uh, really no longer had the strength to be the international leader that a capitalist system really needs a regulator, some country that is wealthy enough and confident enough to make choices on, for the good of the whole. England no longer had the strength to do that, and the United States wasn't ready to pick up the baton. They mm -hmm. were still thinking as a separate, we do what we want to do mm -hmm. nation. And that changed. The United States did assume that leadership. And of course, we know they followed it up with the Marshall Plan, which is tremendously important. Mm -hmm. You know, all the Soviet uh, uh, countries were invited uh, to the first conference for the Marshall Plan. The only country that wasn't invited was Franco Spain, hmm. uh, but the uh, the Russian government turned it down, turned down the opportunity. Mm -hmm. They probably smelled a rat. Um, mm -hmm. Anyhow, it was a very successful reconstruction program. Mm -hmm. uh, so that I think is the, probably from the capitalist point of view the story that's the most important for that very bleak period in mm -hmm. human history. Mm -hmm. So then capitalism writes itself, and uh, but with the help of communism, defeats fascism. And uh, then we have a long period in the Cold War. And then, uh, again, this is something I know a little bit about. And uh, it's the beginning in the 1980s, 89 to 91, uh, the communist world falls apart. There's a great expansion of the capitalist economy, a great and sudden expansion and then, and this is sort of what I want to hear you talk about, and then there's a, I don't know what to call it, the Great Recession. Is that what we're calling it now? I, d yes, I don't know. Yes, are. the Great There's Recession. Yes, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, I'd be interested to hear you talk a little bit about where you think capitalism is going now after the Great Recession, if we're after it. I don't know if we're after it yet. There are too many people out of work. Right. Um well, I think we're in for a period of where we're going to have to adjust our expectations and attitudes. I don't see any uh, innovation about to, you know, wave of innovation about to break and to, to get great returns on investment. Uh, our great recession was caused by this risk-taking in part of the financial sector in which they were desperate to find ways to get more than two or three percent for their money and invented these uh, securitized mortgages. Um, so we see the Great Recession is a, is a kind of a, um, uh, what did you say, a kind of a funny mirror, like a 
funhouse mirror of capitalism as you see people desperately who have the money desperately trying to get more out of it not and um and taking risk that just plunged us all into this you know after the bubble burst in the housing prices um and plunging us into this recession as so what they have what this has done is left us with still i suppose capitalists wanting to find some place to get a bigger return uh it was left with a load of debt with no real innovative way in the offing so i don't think we're going to see um a great upturn i don't expect the world to turn upside down we're going to get out of it we're going to people are going to get back to work there's a, but we're going to have i imagine stagnant wages and stagnant wealth returns um for you know a 10 20 year period now I am always uh, a finding a silver lining kind of person. I think in this way in which wise men have been proven wrong and uh, all these fancy risk models shown to be utterly worthless and it's you know really a lot of of um, you might say egg on the face of of financial wizards that this is a right opportunity for us to look very carefully at the situation we're in and look at some really endemic problems with capitalism. I think inequality is one of them, degradation of the environment is another one. Uh, a, a third problem that we're dealing with is the short-termism, if I may use that awkward phrase, of people in the financial world and their short-termism as a coming at a time in which financial services represents an ever increasing portion of the gdp pie and this isn't good for the long term development of capitalism mm -hmm. and i would just hope i don't think we're through reform uh, as i say i don't think we're through with legislation i i would hope that in this sort of I think grim is too strong a word but in this slowdown let's call it a slowdown period there would be some serious rethinking of capitalism as there was at the time of the new deal as there was at the t after the second world war now a lot of things we need to do stagnating wages is one of them i'm a great great advocate of the living wage i think it is absolutely atrocious that people can work 40 hours and not earn enough to have a decent way of life mm -hmm. and capitalism on its own is not going to solve that problem mm -hmm. because capitalists are competitive and labor costs are very large component of any service or product offered i think it's going to take changing sensibilities on the part of people we in the public just as there's a changing sensibility over child labor and over slavery i think there's going to be a changing sensibility in favor of a living wage of getting mm -hmm. wages up so i see this as a time of stock taking mm -hmm. and where there's going to be a slowdown but i say this with the caveat that we historians always put in you never know which is <laughs> yeah that's true you do never know so let me um i'm going to put on my critical theorist my kind of i don't know marxist we used to say but cap for a second and i'm going to ask you what i i think is kind of a pointed question that somebody who uh, came from that perspective might Uh, ask. Now, uh, let me give a little bit of a setup. Uh, if um, the, the, the Romans invade Gaul, and that's imperialism, they impose the Roman way of life. Uh, the um, let's see, the uh, the Crusaders invade the Holy Land, that's imperialism. They 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 impose the Christian way of life. Now, here we have this economic uh, ideology that was developed in uh, 16th and 17th century England, and then spread to 
Europe, and then it was spread all over the world. Is that imperialism? Well, uh, I would say that the uh, Crusaders and the um, Romans uh, did this by the exertion of very evident force, um, whereas capitalism, uh, with the exception of true imperialism, which is when the Europeans divvied up Africa and America yep. took it to the Philippines, one thing or another, uh, as differentiated from that kind of capitalist imperialism, the imperialism that you're suggesting is in, that's infecting Malaysia and Indonesia and the Four Little Tigers and China and, and India, um, that capitalism has not been by the force of arms. Mm -hmm. It's been, it seems to me, um, by the appeal of generating some wealth. Mm -hmm. I mean, capitalism generates wealth. There's no doubt about that. I mean, a capitalism in the last 10 years has lifted about 500 million people out of poverty. Mm -hmm. I and mean, that, that's kind of an incredible record. Um, so I think it's understandable mm -hmm. why this wealth-generating capacity is appealing to countries. Mm -hmm. So if this uh, is imperialism, then it's imperialism by demonstration and attraction for yes. the large, for the, for the most part. For the most part, I mean, and I don't want to in any way be naive and uh, <laughs> say that there aren't international corporations that aren't pushing things here and there. And um, I suppose you'd say communication. If the world can see all these goodies and, uh, that that they don't have, I mean, I would just, yep. and also uh, the, the cell phone is, itself is eliminating isolation in many, many, many little mountain towns in, in Africa. Mm -hmm. They're now connected to this larger world. It's just hard to deny the power of that kind of connectivity. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree completely. I think that, uh, although this is somewhat simplistic to say, uh, it was that demonstration effect that really brought down the Soviet Union. I mean, I had been to Russia a lot, and I knew a lot of Russians, and they knew what was going on in West Germany and in France and England and the United States. They, they knew what we had, and they knew they didn't have it. And they didn't right. really understand why, and the government wasn't giving them a clear and compelling answer. Uh, and uh, so they acted, um, thank God, somewhat peacefully. So that, that's very good. And maybe that's what's happening in Egypt right now. I don't know. I'm not an Egyptian specialist. but uh, Well, I think I, I do think that's part of it. And I know I, I'm sure we've all been reading, but this, that the young people feel humiliated yeah. by what they have and what they see other people have. Yeah, no. And I'm... that's a pretty powerful feeling. No, I think that's exactly. I think that's exactly right. And you know, no, I think that's exactly right. I'm not even going to add anything to like uh, that. They, they really, um, you really want to be proud in the place uh, of the place that you live. You, you really do. I, mean, I remember hearing. I remember reading a book. Uh, um, gosh, I can't remember who it was by, but they, it, it was. Uh, it was called Among the Believers, and it's by. Gosh, I can't remember. But anyway, he talked about how the number one uh, election issue in Pakistan in the 1970s was uh, it, um, immigration, how to get out of Pakistan. That's how, it's a, you know that's that's a that's not good. That's not good for your political no. culture when that's the number one issue: how to leave your country. So, uh, anyway, that's it. So, uh, we, we've taken up a lot of your time, Joyce, and I, I really want to thank you for it. Uh, it's a really uh, fascinating book, and I encourage everybody to go buy it: "The Relentless Revolution: A History of Capitalism" by Joyce Appleby. Joyce, um, we have a traditional final question on this show, and it is this: What are you working on now? 
Oh, I'm working. I loved writing a book for the general audience. It was so nice not to have that <laughs> snarky, hypercritical scholar as your likely reader. And so you get rid of that imaginary reader and get a reader of, ooh, I'd be interested in learning this. And so <laughs> I'm, going, I'm writing a book for a general audience, and it's a history of curiosity. Really? Or more particularly, how and when did curiosity become a dominant quality of Western culture? Huh. Wow. And I start with the, the discoveries. The church looked down upon curiosity, at least curiosity about natural phenomena, because they thought it was uh, irrigating to human beings' knowledge that God had. Um, but the discovery of the New World introduced so many anomalies, people, plants, animals, topography, that uh, curiosity just vaulted over these limits, and you have mm -hmm. this, you know, interest, just vital interest. Not universal. I mean, it, it was it was slow. It started slowly, uh, but of course, you're talking about 1492 and the early 16th century. You don't have a lot of communication uh, from courts and cities to uh, the rural areas, but it, it grows, and I'm, and I'm following, I'm going to end with Darwin, mm -hmm. um, because I, I see how these amateur, in, amateurs interested in, uh, you know, what is this mollusk, uh, why does this tree have this leaf formation, these people uh, lay the groundwork for all the natural sciences, and then it all sort of tends to kept producing the more knowledge they had the more questions they had until finally they had this great question about you know, where did human beings come from mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the question of course that that Darwin um, answers in his great origins of species mm -hmm. so that's what I'm working on I'm I'm just uh, finishing with uh, well I'm not finishing with I'm just anyway I'm dealing with Captain James Cook who was mm -hmm. a great explorer of the yeah. Pacific, the last great explorer so was Captain Cook. And then there's Alexander Humboldt on the yeah. horizon, who is a great, uh, well, he did so many things, but he explores the interior of uh, South America. I'm having lots of fun with it. Yeah, it sounds like a, it sounds like a really fun project. I, I envy you very much. Um, yeah, and, and sort of throwing off the uh, detailed footnote, it can be a very liberating experience. So I, I encourage more of that. Get the word out, because uh, history is not just um, uh, about footnotes and monographs in German. It's a lot more to it than that. So anyway, Joyce Appleby, it's really been a, a great pleasure talking to you today. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, I've really enjoyed it, Marshall. All Thank right. you. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Joyce Appleby about her new book, The Relentless Revolution, A History of Capitalism. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Thank you.